Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. In 1972, NASA launched the exploratory space probe Pioneer 10. According to Leon Jaroff in Time magazine, the satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter, photograph it and its moons and moons and beam data to Earth about the planet's magnetic field, radiation belts, and atmosphere. Scientists regarded this as a bold plan because up until then, no satellite had gone beyond Mars, and they feared the asteroid belt would destroy the satellite before it reached its target. But Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission and much, much more. Swinging past Jupiter in November 1973, the space probe was hurled at a higher rate of speed toward the edge of the solar system by the planet's immense gravity. At one billion miles from the sun, Pioneer passed Saturn. At some two billion miles, it hurled past Uranus. Neptune at nearly three billion miles. Pluto at almost four billion miles. By 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun, and despite that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam back radio signals to scientists on Earth. And it kept going. That nearly 8 billion miles from the sun, the satellite continued to send signals received in 2002, 30 years after its launch. And perhaps most remarkable, writes Jaroff, is the fact that those signals emanate from an 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight, and take more than nine hours to reach the Earth. It was called the little satellite that could, and it was not qualified to do what it did. Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with a useful life of only three years but it has kept going and going and going. By simple longevity, its tiny 8-watt transmitter radio accomplished more than anyone thought possible. And so it is when we offer ourselves to the Lord and to His service. God desires faithfulness in the Christian life. He wants us to be careful to maintain good works. And like that humble satellite, we are, going to, we are to keep going and keep serving the Lord and not stop until He calls us home. And by our faithfulness and allowing God to work through us, we can accomplish more for Christ than anyone thought possible. Amen. Verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. This is a faithful saying, Paul says, and what he's referring to is not what follows it, but what precedes it. He's referring to what he just said in verses 4 to 7. This blessed sentence, which is all one sentence in verses 4 to 7, that sentence is packed with rich, amazing truth regarding 
our personal salvation. Paul calls it a faithful saying or a trustworthy statement. A statement that can be wholly relied upon and trusted in every way. We can trust our eternal destinies. We can trust our souls on the fact, the truth, that God has done everything necessary to save us from all our sins. We can trust completely that we are saved by the kindness and love of God, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy that we are saved, that we are washed, regenerated, justified, our heirs through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and simply by placing our faith in that finished work, we are ready for heaven. It is God the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write that sentence of verses 4-7, to and it is God the Holy Spirit who declares in verse 8, that that statement is faithful. That statement is trustworthy. That statement is true. And Paul tells Titus, affirm it constantly. Affirm these things. Proclaim the gospel confidently, consistently, repetitively. Stress the truths of the gospel contained in this wonderful sentence concerning our personal salvation. Titus was to stress these truths and never stop speaking of God's salvation. Never quit proclaiming the grace of God to keep telling others that Christ has done it all. To continually assure others of the truth that the cross of Christ is all sufficient to save us from all of our sins. And he was to do so Because as back then, so now, there are many voices of error out there that consistently and repetitively tell people the wrong thing, that promote false doctrine, false gospels, teaching things that don't save people from the lake of fire. There is a desperate need to consistently proclaim God's grace clearly, emphatically, and unapologetically telling people the true gospel that saves, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is a desperate need for this gospel because most of the world fits the description of verse 3. And that should that verse should break each of our hearts because Paul brings it up first to remind us what we once ourselves were, but also to remind us what most of the world is like. And most are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The world needs the good news of verses 4-7 to so the lost can be delivered from the power of darkness so they can be enter the light 
and be saved by God's grace. In order to better understand Paul's intended meaning in verse 8, this verse can also be put, And concerning these things, I desire thou affirm constantly to the end that they who have believed God might be careful to maintain good works. Or, this message is most trustworthy in concerning these things, I want you to insist steadfastly so that those who have believed in God may be careful to apply themselves to good works. Verses 4 to 7 remind us how that as believers we have been saved by such a great salvation and such kindness that then this is to remind us of our response to that grace how then we should be people of kindness and goodness for the Lord out of gratitude for His grace. And Titus was to stress and affirm constantly the truth of salvation. As he did so, it was to the end that those who believe in God, those who are the recipients of God's grace, would then be people of grace. And that believers would be careful to maintain good works. This, is, this verse is all about our response to the grace of God. He shows us very clearly in verse 5 that we are saved not by works of righteousness, but which we have done. But then in verse 8 he shows but we are saved unto good works, to do good works after we have been saved, after we have trusted Christ as our personal Savior. Grace received is to be grace given away now. And in grace, Christ gave himself and gave his life for others, for all men in purchasing our salvation. And then in response to that grace, in Christ's likeness, we are to give ourselves to the Lord, to serve him, to give ourselves to others, to serve them. For the glory of God. 1 Timothy 6.18 says that God desires that we do good and be rich in good works, ready to distribute or give, willing to communicate or share. But what are good works? How would we define that? What does good works entail? 1 Timothy describes the good works of a widow as such practical things as raising children, showing hospitality, serving the saints, relieving the afflicted. Good works can't really be defined completely because they manifest themselves in countless ways. And it's been said of good works in the Christian life that work is love made visible. And our good works make God's love visible to this world as we serve Him and care for others. And members of the body of Christ are actually created in Christ for good works. For we, the whole body of Christ, all believers, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has a blueprint for every life, a plan for all the good works He wants us to do for Him as we yield our lives 
and we live for Him, when we make ourselves available to God, He will direct our paths and He will show us the things He wants us to do for Him. An elderly couple was once visiting one another for supper. The two women went into the kitchen for a moment, leaving the men to talk. One of the men said to the other, The missus and I went to the nicest restaurant last night. The food, the service was fantastic. The other man asked, Is that right? What was the name of the place? And he replied, That's just it. I can't recall. Say, what's the name of that red flower that has thorns all over it that people give on special occasions? And he responded, You mean a rose? And he exclaimed energetically, Yeah, that's it. And then he yelled out to the kitchen, Hey, Rose, what was the name of that restaurant that we went out to eat last night? (laughs) Well, there was something important there for him to remember, and he forgot his wife's name. But we have Paul in this verse reminding us of something important for us to remember. And that word, be careful, is that God stressing that to us. That be careful here means to ponder, to exercise thought. Sometimes we need to take a step back. In conferences like this, when you set time aside for God and sit under the teaching of His Word, or good times for those times to stop and think. Examine your life. Am I maintaining a life full of care for others and good works for the glory of God? To be careful means to consider the importance of using your life to serve the Lord, the priority of living for Him that it needs that you need to have, to live in light of eternity. That that priority that needs to be in our life to live in light of eternity. We need to give careful thought that we are serving faithfully, that we don't miss opportunities to serve the Lord now and in the future so that we do not fail to reach the people who need the Lord now and in the future. And again, in the context of this verse and all that surround it, we are to give careful thought to maintain good works in light of verse 3, in light of those who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, and then to give careful thought about what God has done for us, that after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, according to His mercy He saved me by the washing of regeneration, that being justified by God's grace, I am an heir according to the hope of eternal life. And that careful thought, this carefulness is to make us realize that God has been so good to me and He would have me do good works for Him and show His love, show His kindness, show His goodness to others with the same heart as Him out of kindness in love and grace. Bill White tells the following true story. During a Saturday afternoon community service day, I was walking down a narrow side street in the city of Compton, California, 
heading towards one of the work sites sponsored by a local church. It was towards the end of the workday, and dozens of green-shirted church volunteers, maybe 50 in all, were streaming out of the site, getting ready to head off to lunch after finishing a complete makeover of a local house. I was six or eight houses away when I passed a married couple working in their own yard. I paused to compliment the woman on her roses, and she asked me what we were doing down the street. I replied that we represented a band of churches who were serving the city. And we continued chatting about the neighborhood transformation she had witnessed by our simple acts of goodness. During my conversation with this woman, her husband had been weed whacking the other side of the house in the front yard, but then he saw my green volunteer shirt. He turned off his weed whacker, set it down, walked straight towards me, and I'll never forget his words. After looking into my eyes, he nodded approvingly toward the renovated house down the street, and he said, where can I get a heart like yours? Flabbergasted, I said, we got our hearts from Christ, from knowing him, and he'd be glad to give you one too, like his too. Before I had to head off, we had a great conversation about the gospel of Christ and his power to change hearts and lives. That's what Paul's teaching us here. How our hearts come from God's heart of kindness and love and how we should be a people that are careful then to maintain good works out of kindness towards others. Verse 9, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. The teaching that good works by believers at the end of verse 8 are good and profitable to all men are in contrast to what he says in verse 9 about the foolish questions, genealogies, contentions that are unprofitable and profit no one. Yeah, Titus was to teach others that in the Christian life there are good things to pursue and there are useless things to run away from. And the term avoid here, when he says avoid foolish questions, means to be a bystander, to keep oneself away and to turn your back. It's an imperative in the original Greek, meaning it's a command from God. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't discuss or defend the truth, because we should. Rather, he is warning against foolish controversies. The word foolish is the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from it. (laughs) We are to move away from moronic, empty, pointless arguments. There were those in Paul's day who loved to ask hypothetical questions of doctrine. If this were true, if that were true, then this might be true. And they get into discussions about Jewish genealogies, contend, quarrel, strive, and fight over fine points of the law. And today there are still people today who want to argue and quibble over things that don't build up or help believers, that are empty, pointless discussions of no profit, And again, this is in light of the truth, the weighty truth of verses 4 to 7. And he contrasts that 
with the foolish questions and contentions. And today we still need to heed this instruction to avoid these things. Keep ourselves away from them. Keep the main thing, the main thing. These are time wasters is what he's showing. God does not want us to waste our time. He wants us to use our time to be careful to maintain good works. And wasting the gift of time grieves the giver of time. And God has created a lifetime of opportunity for each believer in serving Him. And thus He desires us to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. Stories told about a six foot ten Texan who walked up to the counter at McDonald's, slammed down his big fist, and said to the girl behind the counter, I want half a Big Mac. And she said, What? He said, I want half a Big Mac and I want it right now. And not exactly sure what to do. She said, Excuse me for a minute. She headed back to her manager without realizing that the man was following right behind her. She got to the manager and she said, there's a big klutz out there who's dumber than lead who's ordered half a Big Mac. And just about that moment, she suddenly realized that he was standing right behind her and quickly she added, and this nice gentleman wants the other half. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes you have to think fast. What you say is important. It takes wisdom to know how to deal and to react to difficult circumstances and difficult people. We have God's wisdom here, how to deal with a heretic in verse 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, Paul says. Paul teaches here that as to the heretic or people who are advocating these useless things and exert a divisive, destructive influence in the church after the first and second admonition reject. The term heretic speaks of a divisive person, one who creates divisions, factions, schisms, as the idea of someone who makes a resolute decision to be obstinate and to cause dissension. This person prefers to major on the minors. And Paul shows here that divisive people must be dealt with decisively because of the damage that can be done to God's people and the local church and the church's testimony before the lost. Paul's instruction is to warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time, and then after that he is to be rejected. These two admonitions, though, there's grace in that. These warnings are for the purpose of restoration with the hope that they will come back after being admonished, understand the error of their ways, the error of their teaching, the discouragement that they are being. But then if nothing changes after these gracious (laughs) admonitions, that person shows themselves, Paul says in verse 11, to be subverted which literally means twisted in character, turned inside out, having turned from what is right, in other words. And they show themselves to be sinful and sinning, Paul says in verse 11. Thus they are self-condemned by their actions. It's been said you can't reason with an unreasonable person. 
And this kind of person then is to be rejected, refused, and avoided. Verse 12, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. In verse 12, Paul told Titus he intended to send Artemis or Tychicus to take over the tasks of Titus on the island of Crete when one of them arrived. Titus was then to join Paul in Nicopolis in western Greece where Paul was determined to stay for the winter. His words, be diligent, when he says in verse 12, Paul's telling Titus to do his best. The command has a sense of urgency that Titus was to do his utmost to get to Nicopolis. What you see when you come to these latter verses of a Pauline epistle, and even in the beginning of Paul's epistles often, you see that Paul was not a lone ranger. Paul partnered with people. Even though Paul was an apostle, he worked in tandem with believers, with all with people from all different backgrounds, different countries, different careers, different levels of education. He worked with a doctor. He worked with a runaway slave. He served with those from a Jewish background. He served with those from a pagan background. And you see some of those, some of those with a pagan background here. Artemis means gift of Artemis, the goddess of fertility, worshipped in Ephesus. His parents obviously venerated the pagan goddess, and this tells us that he came to faith in Christ from a typical Greek upbringing. Zenus, in verse 13, means Zeus given, and was another converted Greek, and he was a lawyer, which tells us that even lawyers can be saved by the grace of God. (laughs) But all these different people, tell us and remind us how the church is created by Christ to be a community, an organism of interdependent people, Jew and Gentile, one, in one body, all members, needed, needing one another. In Christ, there are no barriers of nationality, race, education, social standing, wealth, religion, or authority. The gospel of grace breaks down all walls. Barriers which separate men in the world are not present in Christ. And differences among men in this world have no meaning in Him. Christ dwells in all who believe, and we are all one in Him. Romans 12.5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Paul had not yet made up his mind what man he wanted to send to Crete to replace Titus, whether Artemis or Tychicus. Artemis is not known to us other than what we glean from the meaning of his name. But Tychicus is a man that is known to us. Tychicus was Paul's personal FedEx man. He delivered Paul's letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. And he came from Rome to deliver those letters, which was a long, difficult trip. Upon delivering those letters, Tychicus was charged by the Apostle Paul to tell the churches how Paul was holding up back in Rome. 
And then he was to give Paul info about how those churches were doing. He's commended in Scripture as being a beloved brother, a faithful minister in the Lord, a fellow servant. And the reason why you have his name here in the light of being careful to maintain good works is because you have a living example of one, of a man that was careful to maintain good works, who yielded his life to the Lord, who was greatly used by the Lord. Zenos and Apollos, in verse 13, came to Crete at this writing. Uh, Zenos is again a, a man we only know by the meaning of his name, but Apollos is a brother that again we know something about from Scripture. Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. He was an eloquent preacher, mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures. Aquila and Priscilla in the past took him under their wings in Ephesus, expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly, teaching him about the revelation of the mystery and the dispensation of the grace of God. Apollos grew in grace, was used by the Lord. He was a man also who was careful to maintain good works. He had preached in Ephesus, he preached in Corinth, and now he had come to Crete as he was serving the Lord. And Paul asked that the believers in Crete support Zenos and Apollos as they went about ministering to the various churches on the island. And it's very probable, more than probable really, that they carried this letter to Titus on Crete. And now Titus was told to help them as they continued on their journey. Verse 14, Let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. In light of this need to take care of Zenos and Apollos, Paul desired that the believers in Crete learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, such as providing for Zenos and Apollos with places to stay, funds for their ministry. We learn from this, though, that maintaining good works is something that must be learned. As he says, let ours also learn to maintain good works. We must be careful to maintain them, careful to consider the importance of serving the Lord, careful to be faithful, but we also must learn to maintain good works. As God in His grace, as we've learned from verse chapter 2, verse 12, grace teaches us, and then we learn. As we see in chapter 3, verse 14, we learn to live for the Lord, to serve Him by His grace, and to lead fruitful lives for the honor and glory of our Savior. And then Paul says, All that are with me salute thee, Titus. What happened to Titus? Second Timothy 4.10 writes this about him. For Demas hath forsaken, forsaken me for having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. 2 Timothy 4.10 is the last reference to Titus in Scripture written by Paul shortly before his death. Paul wrote that Titus was in Dalmatia. Thus we learn that Titus did leave Crete 
likely obeyed what Paul told him in verse 12, to be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis. Nicopolis was in western Greece. Dalmatia was a district further north up the coast from Nicopolis along the Adriatic Sea above Macedonia in Greece. So this shows us that Titus likely went to Nicopolis. Then either he went further north to Dalmatia of his own accord or Paul had sent him further north. We don't know for sure. It's an interesting side note, but it's believed by many that it was in Nicopolis that Paul was rearrested and then taken to Rome for his second and final Roman imprisonment. And then Titus then went up north to Dalmatia. Because there's no criticism or negative inference of defection about uh, Titus being in Dalmatia in 2 Timothy 4.10, we can assume that Titus was there in Dalmatia for noble reasons and was serving the Lord. Titus is still esteemed on the island of Crete. In one ancient writing, there's a recorded a good testimony of his, of his life, and it's one to imitate in our own life. Titus laid the foundation of the church in Crete, was himself there the pillar of the truth and the strong support of the faith, the unwearied trumpet of the proclamation of the gospel, and the clear utterance of the tongue of St. Paul. With Paul's characteristic closing, Paul completes the letter to Titus, Grace be with you all. Amen. Mm -hmm. Every single letter that Paul wrote, without exception, all 13 of them, Mm -hmm. begins with some form of the words, Grace to you. And every single one of them ends with some form of the words, Grace be with you. So why is it always grace to you at the beginning of letters and grace be with you at the end of his letters? And this is something for you to consider. As the letters begin, grace and peace from God the Father and God the Son is being given and mediated to the readers of the letter by the words and truth that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written. As the letter ends, having received grace and peace through the reading, the studying, the hearing of God's truth, like we've done this weekend, Mm -hmm. Paul knew that the readers would then leave and return to the troubles and the daily grind of life in this world. So he prayed that the grace which they had received through the word of God, would be with them, that they would remember, that they would apply those truths to their hearts and lives. In Spain, a matador is synonymous with courage. Armed with only a red cape and sometimes a long sword, he majestically enters the arena to battle a hot-tempered bull something I would never find myself doing personally. When he approaches the enormous beast, the matador must deftly step to the side exactly at the right moment, swinging his cape in a graceful manner. One tiny mistake, one lapse of concentration could mean death. Where do those men gain the courage to face such fierce raging bulls? 
One of Spain's most successful matadors, El Cordobas, answered, The university for courage is to do what you believe in. In the same way as believers, we gain courage by doing what we believe in. We enter the world's bullfighting arena every day where we face enormous challenges and obstacles. In order to gain victory over those obstacles that our culture can set in our path, we must fully lean on God and His grace and His Word. And we must take the letter to Titus and with courage take our knowledge of it and then boldly live it out to this world and do what we believe in with God's help and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, sir. Father, we thank you for the book of Titus and for this being such a special letter uh, that we can walk through together as believers in Christ and to gain encouragement and challenge from its truths and then to apply them to our lives and to go out into this world and to live it out and living it out knowing that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That we live in light of that truth that uh, all around us every day are people that God desires to be saved, that Christ died for, that that your grace has provided salvation for, and that we be a strong testimony and a bright light uh, for our Savior uh, with your help and by your grace. Father, we thank you for this conference. We pray that we might take the truths that we've learned this weekend and to be Bereans concerning them, and that we study to see if these things be so, that we receive them with all readiness of mind. And, but then that when we know that they're the truth, that we then uh, live out these truths uh, for your honor, for your glory. We're thankful for each one here, for your love, for your care, for each one that is here today and has attended throughout this weekend. We pray for journey mercies as... Uh, Many are traveling back uh, home after the conference and just for safety. And, and that you'll use us, use our lives that we might be careful to be people that maintain good works. We pray all this in our Savior's name. Amen.